please take your Bibles and open to 2 Samuel chapter 20. 2 Samuel chapter 20 is we're nearing the end of our series on David. Um, and so turn there in your Bibles um, as we've been looking at this, uh, this study of 2 Samuel for a number of months now and we're soon to be drawing it to a close. But in chapter 20, as we get to 2 Samuel 20, and we're going to read that as we go through the text this morning, all of us will realize that this is a story we've heard before. It is the same sad state of affairs that have plagued David since that faithful day, fateful day, unfortunate day, that he chose to take Bathsheba, commit adultery, and murder her husband Uriah and seek to cover it up. God had told David through the prophet Nathan that due to David's sin, the sword would never depart from his home or from his house. Though David would be spared and his kingdom was eternally secure through God's promise, God's discipline and chastisement would come as we've seen throughout these last few chapters. Now in chapter 19, that we just finished last week, chapter 19 ends with Israel and Judah spatting over their relationship to David, though both groups had sided with Absalom in his rebellion. It seems as though things were on the mend, as they seemed to be coming back together from this civil war, but how quickly things can change. David's renewed kingdom is facing incredible ongoing instability. Now listen. Like all things that involve broken human beings, and by the way, that's all things. All things involving broken human beings can become unstable. They can teeter in a heartbeat. This includes marriages, families, organizations, systems, governments, churches, or even the local garden club and PTA. Things can go off the rails in a hurry. All of the structures and policies and laws that we put in place are never completely safe in the hands of people. Everything we produce and build, just think about this, everything we produce and build and construct if they are not properly maintained and conserved, they will ultimately crumble from backyard decks. Get an amen at my house from that. To buildings, to bridges, to roofs. No matter what it is, it will eventually fall apart. Our world, by the way, is filled with remnants of cities and civilizations that have crumbled Many of those civilizations boasted that they would be the exception to that truth. But that's why we visit the ruins of Ephesus and the ruins of Rome. Because they didn't. Now again, nothing is really safe from this truth. Empires and nations rise and fall as predictably as the sun rises and sets. And America is no different. We are no exception. In 2 Samuel, what we're going to see is David's kingdom teetering and shaking. And all of this is meant to remind us that though David is God's chosen king, though David is God's covenant king, he is not God's ultimate king. 
As good as he may be, he is not God's ultimate king. David cannot fully usher in God's promised kingdom. Only God's son, Jesus, can do that. And that's why Isaiah prophesies, and we sing it at Christmas, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. David is pointing to that. That day. So let's look at this unstable, shakable kingdom through four scenes in 2 Samuel 20. Notice how the text begins with the rebellion of Sheba. It says, now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So notice first that this text begins with kingdom subversion. The kingdom is being subverted by this particular man. Now our text begins with a description of our new rebel. It was Absalom. That had been dealt with and now... This man is described as a worthless fellow, this Benjamite, this son of Bichri, whose name is Sheba. Notice that the text says he's a worthless fellow. Now, the literal translation of that term is a son of Belial, a son of Belial. Now, this term is used throughout Samuel and the rest of the Old Testament to speak of those who would lead Israel to disobey or rebel against God's chosen leaders. This goes all the way back to the time of Joshua. Those that rebelled against him were called sons of Belial. And throughout Samuel, it was, uh, it was, um, they're, they're worthless people. They're called sons of Belial. Now here, the son of Belial is Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. Now the writer here leaves no doubt how we are to view this person. It's not up in the air. He is a traitor and a scoundrel. He is worthless because he, like Absalom, has chosen to reject God's king, David, and thus to reject God himself. Now, we can't be sure, but he appears to be one of the thousand Benjamites who accompanied Shimei to basically escort David back to Jerusalem. And when God forgives Shimei, and there doesn't appear to be a war to break out, Sheba doesn't like that. Maybe he's hoping that Benjamin is going to overthrow David. Maybe he's simply looking for a fight. But either way, he doesn't like what's happening. So he blows the trumpet and invokes God's covenantal language to try and persuade Israel to abandon their king. Notice what he argues. He says that, quote, that we have no portion in David and no inheritance in the son of David. Now, that language of portion and inheritance is the language that God himself had used in dividing out the promised land 
to Joshua to the tribes of Israel. If you remember that, that God had promised them a portion and an inheritance. And he says, we don't have that in David. Now, he's basically saying that Israel will not get what God has promised them through David. That's what he's saying. Israel, you will not get what God has promised you if you continue to follow David. Now, Sheba must be suffering from some very convenient form of memory loss. He's forgotten some things. He can remember that God gave Israel promises and blessings. Amen? He remembers that, that they have a portion and an inheritance promised to them. He can remember that, but he can't seem to remember that God also gave them a king. That's what he's forgotten. God gave them David. He seems to want God's blessings. Hear me, this is the point. He wants God's blessings and God's inheritance, but not God's rule or authority or king. That's what he wants. He wants God's blessings, but he doesn't want God's rule or authority in his life. Now listen, make no mistake. Our modern churches and our modern culture are filled with Sheba's. Those that absolutely speak of wanting God's promises. They want God's blessings. They want God's inheritance. But at the same time, they have no desire to obey God when things are inconvenient. Or when things are hard. Just let a relationship get hard. Or a desire run out of control. And they will be the first to say, well, who cares what the Bible says about that? I don't care what Jesus has to say about my desires or my sins. I want what I want. Well, Sheba wants God's blessings, but he doesn't want God's king. Now listen, with that kind of language, it's quite easy to see that Jesus was never their king to begin with. You see, it's hard to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's hard to pray that when, like Sheba, you also say, I have no blessing or inheritance in the Son of God. Paul writes to Timothy about another Sheba called Demas. And he says that, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Listen, Demas isn't in love with Jesus. He's in love with this world. And here, Sheba isn't in love with God. He's in love with God's blessing and God's land. Make sure you love the giver and not just the gift. Make sure you're not following Jesus just because of what you can get from him but because you actually seek to love, honor, and obey him. Don't be like Sheba. That's subverting the kingdom. But notice the text moves from there, from kingdom subversion to kingdom sadness. Look at verse 3. It's a tragic section of scripture. It says, And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them. But he did not go into them, So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Now these women here, once David arrives back in Jerusalem, let me begin there. 
Once David arrives back in Jerusalem, there is a pressing matter of putting his house back in order. This includes, again, having to come face to face with the consequences of his own sin. If you remember, everyone in all of Israel knows, including David, what Absalom has done with the ten concubines that David left in Jerusalem as he fled from Absalom. God had explicitly told David in 2 Samuel, remember God, what God said? God says, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, and I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. It's exactly what happened. These women had been raped in, sight of all, in the sight of all Israel. They had been abused, not due to their own sin, but to David and Absalom, but due to Absalom and David's sin. David here seeks to care for them. He provides them. He provides for them, but he never again treats them as wives, and they must live out their days as widows. Now, as I said in my previous sermon regarding David taking concubines in the first place, he never should have had them to begin with. This made him more like the kings of the surrounding nations than it did a king who followed God's Old Testament law. But at the same time, David has a responsibility to care for them. And David is learning, and listen, this is, how come, this is why sin messes everything up. David is learning here that even the undoing of sin can have devastating and unforeseen consequences. One commentator said it well when he said this. He says, the, he's talking about the sadness of this text. He says, the only way of disposing of, the, of his wives was to put them in a ward, to shut them up in confinement, to wear out the rest of their lives in a dreary, joyless widowhood. All the joy and brightness was thus taken out of their lives, and personal freedom was denied them. They were doomed for no fault of theirs to be a weary lot of captives, cursing the day, probably when their beauty had brought them to the palace, and wishing they could exchange lots with the humblest of their sisters that breathed the air of freedom. This is sad. Now these women here serve as a serious and sad reminder of the consequences of sin. Not their sin. No, no, no. They remind us, hear me, I want to say this with as much compassion as I can say it. These women remind us that many of God's children, many of God's children have suffered and will suffer due to the sins of others. It's sad and it is tragic. There are plenty of those in this world and in this room who have had their joy and their innocence robbed from them due to the sins of others. It's part of the brokenness of this world. It happens. And these women also remind us that David's kingdom is faulty 
and it is filled with sinful men. And it is not David, hear me, this is the hope of the gospel. It is not David who can ultimately wipe away their tears. It's not David. It's not David who can heal their broken hearts. There is only one, the heir of David, the Son of God, King Jesus, who can do that. It is only King Jesus who draws near to us in our suffering, who enters into it himself and bears it for us. It is only Jesus who promises to set the captives free and to heal every hurt and sorrow. Listen, earth has no sorrow that Jesus cannot heal. It's only Jesus, not David. They're wrapped up as widows because of David. It is only David's son, Jesus, who can heal their broken hearts. Hear me. That's kingdom sadness. But then notice the text moves from there to kingdom insubordination. Just as Sheba sought to to cause an insurrection, here we have insubordination. Look at verses 4 through 13. It says, Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days, and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out from him Joab's men and the Carathites and the Palathites and all the mighty men. And they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri. And when they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. A lot like Judas. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails on the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. And Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri, and one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway. Um, And when he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of of, of Israel to Abel of Bethmechah. And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. The story here turns its attention back to the main culprit and the new insurrection, Sheba. So David instructs his recently promoted general, Amasa, his other nephew, to organize his troops and squash the rebellion as quickly as possible before it organizes into something even more powerful than Absalom. David's not going to make the same mistake that Absalom made by giving David time to rest and regroup. Amasa has three days to get the job done. But when he doesn't meet David's timeline... And we aren't told why David sends Abishai, which is Joab's brother, to take the lead. 
Now, Joab appears to have been demoted below Abishai because of his recent insubordination regarding Absalom. Remember, he killed Absalom when David told him not to. It is here we learn that Abishai decides to take Joab and his men along with him to fight against Sheba. And while they're gathering their forces in Gibeon for the assault on Sheba, Amasa shows up. And Joab takes this opportunity to do what he does best, which is administer his own version of justice apart from the king's orders. So notice the story here. He slyly takes Amasa by the beard with his right hand. By the way, that's a sign of a peaceful brotherhood, a sign of respect. This is what they would have all done, taken each other by the beard and kissed each other, um, which would have been a sign of peace. Most men, by the way, fought with their right hand, so Amasa doesn't see this coming when he takes his right hand to stroke his beard, and his sword is by his left thigh. And he stabs it, plunges it stealthily into Amasa's stomach. Now, lest we forget, Joab has done the same thing regarding Ishbosheth's general, Abner, whom he murdered after David had offered him peace. And Joab also killed Absalom, who was caught in the tree after David had given strict orders not to do so. And here, Amasa had been promoted to general as an olive branch to Judah to help bring them back in so David could regain their support. Joab here either doesn't trust Amasa or he doesn't fully trust David's wisdom. Either way... He murders Amasa and leaves him wallowing on the, side of the, on the side of the road with his entrails spilled about him. Now hear me. What Joab does is understandable. If you've been tracking the story, this is understandable. I can get why Joab would do this. Can you? I mean, right? I can see it. While... I mean, after all, Amasa had rebelled against David. Amasa was really a traitor. Amasa had taken Joab's job that he had done very successful. And so in Joab's mind, I'm simply protecting David from David. I'm protecting David from David. He shouldn't be so merciful here. He wants to protect David's kingdom. And while that is understandable, it is not excusable. David will later instruct Solomon and say to him, listen to what David tells Solomon, his son, in 1 Kings 2. He says, you know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, and how he dealt with the commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Therefore, according to your wisdom, do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. He orders Solomon to kill him. Joab will be executed under Solomon's rule. Now think about this. Just like there can be Sheba's today, there can also be Joab's. Those, hear me, there's a difference. Those that desire to love and serve their king, but at the same time, they actually believe they can run the kingdom better than their king. They can run the kingdom better than Jesus. Now, 
they will not openly fight against Jesus or fight, against, or fight for the enemies of Jesus, but they will be insubordinate nonetheless. The issue is that they have their own ideas of what the kingdom of Jesus should really be like. They think they know better, to Je- better than Jesus and they need to protect Jesus from Jesus. This can show up, by the way, as legalism on one side for those that really want Jesus' kingdom to focus solely on morality and righteousness on their terms instead of on Jesus's, they'll say things like, Jesus, you shouldn't be as gracious and forgiving as you really are. Jesus, those people are rebels and traitors and strugglers. They shouldn't have a seat in your church. They shouldn't have a seat in your kingdom. Are you sure they belong here among us? They sound a lot like Pharisees. And on the other side, the other side of that coin, it's those that really don't like it when Jesus does clearly speak about sin and the demands he places on his disciples to deny themselves and take up their crosses and follow him. You see, they, they justify their dismissal of Jesus' commands by saying things like, Jesus, you really don't mean that about marriage, right? Jesus, you really don't mean that about adultery, right? Jesus, you really don't mean that about sacrifice or about giving. You don't really intend to judge anybody, right, Jesus? You don't expect really anybody to change or to grow or to mature. Listen, both sides of that, whether it's legalism on one or license on the other, both sides are basically just as insubordinate to Jesus as Joab. They don't trust Jesus to run his kingdom. Now, hear me, Joab's insubordination is just as rebellious as Sheba's and Abner's. Listen, I'm going to say that again. Joab's insubordination is just as rebellious as Sheba's and Absalom's. We tend to look at Absalom and Sheba as really being treacherous. It's more serious than Joab's insubordination, but they're really the same. Listen, God told Saul, King Saul, when God rejected him as king of Israel for his disobedience, and by the way, that's why David is now king, listen to what God says to Saul. He says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams, For rebellion is the same as the sin of divination, and presumption is the same as idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Listen, disobedience is the same thing as idolatry. Insubordination is the same as rebellion. All three are just as guilty. And we best be careful that we take an attitude like Joab where we think it is ever right to disobey Jesus because we can run his kingdom better than him. And finally and fourthly, this look at after kingdom insubordination, kingdom shrewdness. Look there, verses 14 through 22 as we wrap this up. 
He says, And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Mecca, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Mecca. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab to come here that I may speak to you. And he came near to her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. And she said to him, Listen to the words of your servants. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That's kind of rich, right? We've seen Joab's way of doing stuff. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bickery, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba the son of Bichri and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now here we see that Joab continues his, pursu his pursuing of Sheba to Abel Beth Mecca, which is roughly, by the way, 100 miles north of Jerusalem, 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. This is a long way north, okay? Like basically to Damascus or Syria, um, but still within the borders of Israel. He has fled as far as possible from David's pursuit. And so when Joab shows up, it's a fortified city with walls. He builds a siege ramp or a siege mound so they can breach the top of the walls and enter the city. Now, Joab typically prefers in his dealings the blunt force approach to situations. And it's here that we meet one of the only bright spots in this whole chapter of the scriptures. We're not even told this woman's name. But we're told that she's wise. She's shrewd. She is a wise and noble woman. She requests to speak to Joab as his servant and presents an argument to him. First, I'm going to give you a couple points of her argument. Notice first that she appeals to, her, to their, the city's historical reputation. He says this, she says, this city, Abel Mecca, has a reputation for wisdom and prudence. That people come here for our wisdom to settle disputes. We are a judicial city with a reputation of handling things responsibly. Second, she argues that she is one of those in Israel who is peaceable and faithful. That I'm for peace. I am faithful. I'm not a rebel or an insurrectionist. I'm not a troublemaker or a rabble rouser. To the contrary, sorry, so, so she's to the contrary of all of, of the Bichrites, Sheba, she's faithful to Israel and for peace. And third, notice she turns the 
she, she emphatically turns the argument on to Joab. She talks about who she is, and then she emphasizes you. She says, she puts the onus on Joab. She argues, you, Joab, are seeking to destroy a whole city for one man. You're seeking to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. This city produces children of Israel. She presses her point further. By the way, Joab, you know what Joab means? Joab means the Lord is father. The Lord is father. So she's basically saying here that, Joab, you're seeking to swallow up the very inheritance of the Lord. You're, you're, you're betraying the Lord who is father. The Lord would not destroy the mothers of one of his children. To attack God's peaceful and faithful children would be to attack the Lord himself. So her rhetoric, her wisdom, her persuasive argument prevails as Joab agrees that only one man needs to die in this situation. And the writer emphasizes, notice it says that she went in her wisdom and convinced her people to dispose of Sheba and save the city from ruin. I can't help but think here that her logic would have been simple and straightforward like Spock from Star Trek. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. The many being all the residents of Baalmecha, Abelmecha, and the few being one, namely Sheba. Right? Now let me say this as we try to wrap this up. Just like many other occasions in the history of Israel, it is a wise and daring woman who is the rightful hero in the midst of a national crisis. So there was a, there's a section here of a very, a, very, a very sad lot of women who have been mistreated, and here the, the emphasis is on a wise and daring woman who is actually the hero of this text. This is the kind of wisdom that almost no one else in Israel seems to have around. This woman stands out as a peacemaker, as a critical thinker, as a wise and winsome leader. You're like, is there no man in this city that could have figured this out? The answer is no. They're all idiots. Women? Golly, that's a softball. All the men are idiots. Amen. That's, uh, the, yes, there you go. Thank you right there. Single lady in the middle, got it. So, amen, all right? It's okay to laugh in church, everybody. I know I go fast, but sometimes my jokes go right over your head, all right? Listen, this woman, she doesn't have to fight with a sword. She can fight with her speech and with her persuasive wisdom. The church does well, hear me. The church does well to raise up these kinds of disciples and then to listen to them. Don't be the person itching for a fight like Sheba or Joab. Be the person who is seeking to resolve the conflict and minimize the damage and hurt to others. Listen, I think Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called the sons and daughters of God. 
And I think Jesus also instructed his disciples to be as shrewd as serpents, but what? As harmless as doves. And that requires wisdom. Now as I close, I mentioned earlier, this chapter reminds us of the need for a greater king. One who will remove all causes of sin and rebellion. And one who will remove all sorrow and wipe away every tear from every eye. One who will rule with righteousness and justice and wisdom. In this chapter, by the way, lest we be too hard, I want you to hear this point that I haven't made too often, but this is so important. This chapter also serves as good evidence that this is real history. You know why? Did you know that kings in ancient history didn't really like their mistakes or their problems to be written down? Because they didn't want to look like they were incompetent leaders. But in the Bible, the Bible puts us all on the same playing field. The Bible says, yeah, David screwed this up. Joab screwed this up. So this is exactly the point. David doesn't come off looking great in these last chapters. David is a broken sinner, and at the same time, he's still a man after God's own heart. He's still God's chosen king for this particular time. He's still God's covenant king, but it's all for the purpose of pointing us to God's ultimate and final king, which is when God comes himself to rule in the person of Jesus, and that is the day we are longing for. We are waiting on Christ to return and set up a, the kingdom that actually does rule in righteousness and justice and wisdom and peace. The question is, do you know King Jesus? Is your hope in Him? Have you placed your faith in Him? If not, then your faith is in ultimately something that's going to fail you. Like those that put their faith in David. Or those who put their faith in some preacher. Or those who put their faith in some relationship. Or some political party. Or some government. Or some job. Or some relationship. You need to find it only in King Jesus. May the Lord add a blessing to the preaching of his word. Would you stand with me, Father? We ask now that you would take your word. And you would apply it to our hearts for the sake of Christ. And that, Father, we would follow, follow, we would, Father, follow Jesus wherever he leads us to the ends of the earth, for the glory of the gospel, for the sake of Christ's kingdom that will soon be coming. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.